All right, so how about this? We're going to um, get into the teaching right now, so why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 6 is what we're going to be looking at here this morning. We've been in a series looking at what we're calling renovation of the heart. Uh, the big idea behind it is we're asking the bigger question as to how does God, if you guys don't have a Bible and need one, go ahead and raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Um, here's my water. Um, we're looking at the bigger question as to what does it look like to be shaped by Jesus, and more specifically, what are the practices that followers of Jesus have done throughout the past 2,000 years, that followers of Jesus had done in Scripture, and that Jesus himself even had engaged in, that way that Jesus had oriented his life and done. So we've looked at a variety of practices, ranging from like fasting to prayer to reading the Scripture to gathering together in a community to worship, to gather in a community to serve one another. All of these are practices. One of the reasons even why we've adapted the language of describing what we do here on a Sunday morning to fit even to this bigger picture, like the practice of generosity. We're not just giving money away. We are actually practicing a muscle, saying that we want to become generous people. And the way that we do that is we enter into these practices that shape us. Again, the end game is not to simply do a bunch of more busy work. The end game is we want to be like Jesus. And we become like Jesus by engaging in these practices that not only Jesus, his disciples in 2,000 years of church history have done. So today we're going to be looking at the subject of, or the practice of what we're just simply describing as simplicity. Um, I, I, I want to define what that means in just a moment, but before we do that, I want to read a, kind of a lengthy section of scripture. So Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look at from verses 19 to 33, so it's very, fairly long. Normally I have you guys stand to read scripture today because it's so lengthy. I'm not going to have you do that. You're welcome. Um, I'm going to read it, and then what I'll do is I'll pray, and then we'll begin to get to work at this. But I want you to pay attention. I want you to listen to it. This is out of what's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' uh, most lengthy, lengthily recorded sermon of his teachings, and this is a section of the sermon where he's addressing a variety of practices that people do but then he begins to describe the importance of focusing our attention upon the singular thing, the one thing um, which we would describe, we can simply describe as simplicity, pulling back from a variety of multitasking things that create anxiety and stress and worry, and then focusing on one thing that actually is in line with the heart and the mind and the purposes of God. So Matthew chapter 6, uh, I'm going to begin at verse 19, and we will jump in. Matthew chapter 19, verse, Matthew 6, 19 says this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp to the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you will drink, or about your body. What you'll put on is not life more than food, the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes grass of the field, which today is alive and beautiful, and we live in San Luis Obispo, and right now everything's green, but we also know this dark secret about San Luis Obispo. In one month, everything's going to be brown again. Hopefully it's not. Two months, there you go. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. But you seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. So God, right now, as we just pause and reflect upon your word, God, we pray that it would just be like a light upon who we are inwardly. God, show us the path that you lay out before us to life, to wholeness, to freedom, to Jesus. And God, every other path that promises everything, promises life, promises fulfillment, promises completion, promises to make us whole, that we would be weary and aware of the fact that as great as the promises are, nothing can fulfill our lives aside from you. So we commit this time in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was thinking about this the other day as I was preparing for this, that um, I'm reading this book right now. I'm going to look it up real quick because I want to look it up right now. Uh, this book is called uh, Overwhelmed. Uh, the subtext is work, love, and play when no one has time. And uh, in it, the author of the book, I don't think she's a Christian, she basically just unpacks this, this fact that we live in a culture and society that we're just constantly overwhelmed. Um, that's one of the constant ongoing narratives I have when I talk with people uh, on the Central Coast. How are you doing? How's life? What's going on? Everybody's response is always the same. I'm just so freaking out, overwhelmed. I got a lot of stuff on my plate. and I'm just anxious, right? Um, and that's kind of a common narrative, I think, for the most part that we oftentimes run into. And it was interesting because one of the things that she says in a book is at the end of World War II, uh, there was sort of this, modern, this modernization, this boom, right, mid-century uh, um, of, you know, creating um, ovens and creating dishwashers and creating, you know, all these other, like, things that promised that if you buy this, right, by General Electric or by, you know, Macy's or uh, Sears or whatever, um, J.C. Penney's, that if you bought this thing, it would make your life that much more better. And one of the, one of the things that she actually goes on in the book to point out, um, by kind of verifiable like fact, that it actually didn't. It, it actually complicated people's lives even more than actually gave them the time that they were promised to actually have. And I was thinking about that in terms of the modern-day context in which we live in a world that's not you know, mid-century modernization with regard to, like, I mean, we live in a high-tech society. And I was thinking about this, that the high-tech society has also come with a, a, a wide assortment of promises to us. 
So as I was going through this, I was just thinking about a handful of things. For, so for example, like smart devices. We have in our hands these, these little things that say, you know, if you have one, your life's going to be better because you're going to have access to all this stuff. So we've got smart devices, smart homes, smart cars, smart, you know, light bulbs, smart everything. And what they promise us is simplicity because everything's within the palm of our hand or uh, capable of being able to be controlled with our hand within the zone in which we live in and occupy right now. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you've ever been around one of these things, you realize um, it, de it demands, to some degree, a graduate level of tech experience, right? I mean, there, there are some people that are called uh, uh, millennials that know how to use these things instinctively from the womb. Um, but the point of the matter is, is that many people, they just, they, they're not, their lives are not better as a result of all of this modern high tech. So the effect, oftentimes, is confusion coupled with anxiety. Um, so the other thing that, as I was even chewing on this and thinking about this, uh, we, we live in a world of monthly subscriptions, right? Um, you know, Netflix, um, iTunes, uh, Pandora. I mean, you ha we have all of these means by which you can just sign up and get this unlimited access to whatever movie you want, whatever music you want, uh, wh whatever types of things that we want that are, that are right at the palm of our hands, audiobooks, all of these things, they promise us convenience. Um, and yet, have you, ever, have you ever at the end of the month looked at like your um, credit card bill and you have like, oh my gosh, how in the world did I get 18 subscriptions at $9.99 a month? How in the world that happened? Actually, this happened to me this past week, not 18, but um, um, my, my wife asked me, she goes, what's this $9.99 uh, reoccurring payment for Amazon Kindle? Like, I'm like, I have no idea. I don't even know what that is. So I, I contacted them and spent like a very long time on tech support, phone call, and they're like, oh yeah, you've had this since like March. I'm like, I don't even know what it is. They're like, you have unlimited supply of the Kindle books. I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't want that. They're like, well, you signed up for it. I'm like, I don't ever remember even signing up for that. So we've been paying for the past, I don't know how many months, 10 bucks a month. And they were nice enough, they gave me 80 bucks back, which was awesome. But the point of the matter that I would make is that, has it ever happened to you? Like at the end of the day, you realize like you're paying for stuff that you didn't even know that you were actually paying for. You have subscriptions to stuff that you don't even use. So it starts out with this promise, it's going to make life better, more convenient, so on and so forth. But the effect is not only financial burden, but also this anxiety of the financial burden. Uh, how about online shopping, right? Can Amazon Prime anybody? So promises, it, pro it comes with a promise. The promise is convenience, to be able to shop, to buy whenever you want, however you want, however much you want, right? I mean, now you can just get a little, a little button that says if you need more paper towels, you press the button, all of a sudden you get paper towels you know, the next day or whatever it is. But the point of the matter is, is again, we have this whole promise that comes with us to make life easier, more accessible with stuff. But the effect, the effect, it's creating a culture and a society of people that have buying addiction. Because there's something unique that comes with just being online and being able to press a button and being able to buy something instantaneously. And then with that comes more anxiety. Uh, let's talk a little bit about communication methods. Uh, Facebook, Facebook Messenger. Instant message, FaceTime, Voxer, Instagram, email, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Have you ever had something that comes in, pings your phone, says, you know, message from so-and-so? And then you're like, wait, what, what was that? Was that Facebook Messenger? Was that Instagram? Where did that thing come from? And then you're like, I don't even know where that came from. And you go searching for it, and you can't find it? That happens to me all the time. I'm like, so if I did not return your call, it's probably because of that. The point that I would make is that we have, we have this world that says, 
you want to know how to make life better and more convenient, more easier to be able to communicate with a wide array of people, is tap into any one of these 18 different forms of communication. It'll make your life better. But it doesn't make your life better. It makes it more complicated is what it does. And you end up losing things. We are, the effect is information overload, lost information, and ultimately, again, anxiety. Uh, let's finish up on social media. Social media promises to keep you, quote, unquote, better connected to people, friends, fans, however you want to describe it. And yet, at the end of the day, what has kind of happened or morphed into the social network world via Twitter or uh, Instagram or even Facebook, for that matter, is sort of this, this world where it becomes this place where people just rant. They just drop their anger and their frustration and their madness so the whole world can just somehow riff off of that and play off of that. But that's, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is it's the place to basically drop all of your promotion, self-promotion. It's a place to become egocentric. It's a place to make much of yourself. And then in that process, uh, there's this feedback that happens. And people like the photo. They comment on the photo. And that creates this like hit of um, what dopamine in your body. And you feel the sense of like when your, when your phone pings you, another person liked that photo or another person commented on that photo. There's this sense of like, oh, I'm not forgotten. I really am appreciated. I really am affirmed. But there's another flip side of that coin. All right? The other side of this is there is always that fear of what happens if you post something that doesn't bring back the response that you thought it was going to bring, then there's this deep sense of letdown. Am I not loved? Do people not really care about me? Am I not really the stuff that I thought I was actually once? So there creates this sense of like fear of missing out. It creates this sense of anxiety. It creates this sense of jealousy. And then anxiety. It's just this feedback loop. that We, we live in this world. This is the world that we live in. How are we all doing? Like this is, this is society today. And the question that I really want to look at today and draw some conclusions from is asking the question, is there a practice that we can address that addresses these anxiety-producing realities and then reorients us back to our maker, restoring joy and purpose? And what I would suggest is, yes, there is. And it's this practice, what we'll just describe as a simplicity. And that's what I want to begin to jump into. I want to give you a little bit of a definition and we'll begin to look at the passage we just looked at. So the practice of simplicity seeks to identify disempower and or neutralize those things which cause anxiety in our lives in order to create a margin for the one true good. In this case, obviously, God. We are followers of Jesus. We see God as the ultimate one true good. And what simplicity does is it reorients our hearts to identify those things that are anxiety producing and bring us back to a place where we seek first what Jesus says is God's kingdom. Here's a couple of quotes. Number one, beginning with Richard Foster. He's written a tremendous book on this. Here's what he says. Is, uh, Simplicity is freedom. Duplicity is bondage. Simplicity brings joy and balance. Duplicity brings anxiety and fear. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you are being duplicitous? Double-faced, double-minded. Um, the way the writer James described it, he says, those of us that are double-minded, um, we, we, we find ourselves constantly freaking out. So a double-minded person or a duplicitous person is someone that desperately wants to be uh, affirmed and cared for and loved and identified in one particular world, but then there's reality. There's, there's the fact, on the one hand, there's the Instagram like you that has a baby in hand and everyone's happy and everything's full of smiles. And there's the other hand, you with 
poop on your hands because you just changed your baby's diaper. That's the reality. But to not accept or not bring these, things to, these two things together, it creates kind of this, this alternate world in which we are trying so hard to please people that we don't even know with stuff that we don't even need, and this is the world that we live in. It, we're duplicitous. And yet what Richard Foster describes, that actually leads to bondage. We are slaves. We are enslaved to the approval of other people, whether or not they like us, or whether or not they don't like us, or whether or not they comment on something that we post. And we are fishing for, looking for, longing for some form of response that we either sometimes get, and then we have this like boost of energy and emotion and superiority over other people, and then there's other times that we don't get that, then we feel like garbage. It's enslavement. Jesus invites us to a different way of living. This is what he offers us. Next slide. Um, Soren Kierkegaard says this. The most common form of despair is not being who you are, who you truly are. And he goes on to say, purity of heart is to do, is to will the one true thing. Purity of heart. To will the one true thing. Again, obviously you've got to ask the question, what is the one true thing? Kierkegaard was a Christian. He's writing as a Christian, trying to fill this in. And then I'll go on to the next slide. We'll show you some uh, resources that I highly recommend. I'll go through these real quick. Number one, Kierkegaard's book, Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, and then Church of Principle. All these are amazing. If you want more, I'm going to keep going on. You can ask me later, and I'll get you that information as well. But I want to jump into looking at the text that we just read. What do these passage, passages teach us about this important reality of simplicity. Now, again, I want to remind you the word simplicity you're not going to find in the Scripture. It's not necessarily how the, word would fr- uh, the Bible would frame this or even Jesus would frame this, but he would just describe this as seeking first God's kingdom or as a matter of priority over all of the priorities, orienting yourself to focusing on, serving, seeking the heart of God, adopting the mind of God over and above all other things that would vie for our attention in this world. So what I want to do right now is I want to look at some of the ways in which these passages, or what these passages teach us. Before I jump into that, I want us to think about something. Because what Jesus does is he actually makes these statements about who we are and how we are as human beings. So for example, look at number one. Verse uh, number one. Uh, Jesus addresses this idea that he tells us that we are to consider where we seek our accolades. Now, the word that he actually uses there is an interesting one. It's the word that might appear in most of your translations as rewards. So on three different occasions, for example, um, verses 1 through 4, he talks about beware of how you give your alms, which is like a way old school way of saying, be careful on how you're generous with your time and your money. Be careful on how you do that, because if you do things to give away money as a way of somehow getting accolades, Jesus says, you'll get that, but that's all you're going to get. You, you won't raise the eyebrow of the Father. In other words, uh, that, that's, not, that's not earning any degree of growth in godliness. Uh, secondly, Jesus talks about prayer. And the big idea that he's describing here is, is this concept of accolades. Um, another way to think of this is rewards, acceptance, recognition. Now again, Jesus is addressing a group of people back in that ancient world that were religious. These are Jewish people that he's talking about. These are not secular Romans that, you know, their spare time is spent in orgies. This is, these are religious people. Their spare time is spent fasting and in prayer and giving their goods away to the poor. Like, that's what Jewish people did and worshiping the one true living God and trying to avoid the impurities of the Roman Empire. 
But he says, look, there's a way to do this. So what I would suggest before we jump into this, that the way that God wired you, you ready for this? The way that God wired all of us is so that you and I are wired for both accolades and to devote ourselves to things that have true value. Now just pause and think about that as a framework. That's, is that not exactly what Instagram is? Instagram is about accolades, getting affirmation, getting the ping, but it's also about promoting things that are valuable, things that we look at and we deem as wonderful, as worthy, as great. We, we take photos of those things. That's why you know, it's, it's, it's a world of you know, the latest graphic design you did or your photography that you did. And again, there's nothing wrong with that at, at all. I want to be really clear about that. But the point is, is, it's how you and I are wired. We are wired in such a way that we long for accolades, we long for acceptance, we long for somebody to affirm you as having value, because the flip side of that is we go through life anonymous. We go through life being insignificant. And when we live our lives with that palpable reality that maybe I am nobody, that leads to despair and self-destruction, like the rest of us do that. So, so what we do is we try to create this reality of who I am. We promote the reality, because that's, that's what we have at our fingertips, by way of social media. But again, I want to be very clear on this. So Jesus tells us in these passages, number one, we've got to consider where we seek our accolades. Uh, it goes through, again, like I said, a group of people that are seeking accolades from others rather than God. Secondly, he says, we are to consider where we store and invest our treasures. Where we store and we invest our treasures. This is like verses 19 to 21 where Jesus begins to talk about uh, beware uh, where you build your treasures. Again, the word that's actually used for treasure, it's an interesting one. Um, it's, it's literally the same word, in fact, in the Greek as thesaurus, which I, I, I'm not like a, you know, a word guy or etymology type of a guy, but the word actually literally means like a, um, I don't know, like a, uh, a receptacle that holds something of value. Okay, so this is how the word actually gets used in the Greek. Um, it could be translated as an item of value. It could be translated as something that's a precious thing. Um, it's also translated as a vault, because what's a vault? And it's where you put your, uh, your gold and your bling, your jewelry, right? Because you all do that. And then finally, another way in which it's defined is, is a casket. And I was thinking like, oh, a casket, it's kind of a weird way. But again, what, what's the whole point of caskets? Well, casket is, is the opposite of just letting a body of a family member rot on the side of the road. Why would we not do that? Like, there's a reason for that, because we value that human being, and now that they're past, we want to respect them even in death. So what do we do? We spend $8,000 on a casket or whatever, and, we, and because they are somebody of value. So we put them in this receptacle. And what Jesus says, be careful about how you consider and what you consider as treasures. He says, be careful, because there are things that you might devote, you might consider as valuable in this life, but it's prone to rusting, and are being stolen. So why does Jesus say this? Well, for one, Jesus recognizes something about humanity, is that when we find something of value, and again, for all of us, it's going to be different. So the things that you value, the things that you place and invest your time, treasure, and talents, and energy into are going to be different than the things that I value, because we all have different differences of opinion. Um, I was just thinking about this the other day, and we'll talk more about this in a second, but I, I like surfing. I just realized I have five wetsuits. 
That's hoarding my opinion. I felt really, really embarrassed about that. They were, now mind you, they were in a box. I didn't even know the box existed because I hadn't unpacked it two years ago, two and a half years ago from when we moved. In fact, I even mentioned last week that we thought we had to move. We just got a phone call Monday. The landlord said, you guys don't need to move. We're not going to move back. So FYI, in case you're wondering, so that's good news. The point of the matter is I just realized, like unpacking some of the stuff in my garage, yes, um, is that I have five wetsuits. I'm like, I don't need a five wetsuits. I don't know why I have five wetsuits. It's accumulation. The point that I would make is this. I'm veering off track. But the point that I want to get back to is all of us have different things that we value that we put our energy and our stock and our investment into. And Jesus says, you've got to be careful about this because some of the things that you invest in, your energy, your time, your treasure in, they're prone, subject to being stolen or rotting or falling away. And why does Jesus say that? Because he knows that when those things are stolen, or when they break, or when they rust, or when they expire, he knows that our hearts will break with it. Because Jesus loves us, he says, I want you to invest in the right things. Because you're wired to value stuff. So it's not about suppressing what you value. It's not at all about that. It's, it's not about acting less than human than who you are. It's about valuing, loving, devoting yourself to the right things. That's the big point. Uh, a lot of times there's a mistaken identity that a Christian is to go around through life uh, somehow dampening their desires. Don't dampen your desires. That is not Christianity. I, I want to repeat that again. Christianity is not about dampening your desires. It's about directing your desires towards the right things. That's what Christianity is. And that's what Jesus says. Seek first God's kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Thirdly, uh, Jesus tells us to consider what we look at. And he uses this... Uh, interesting metaphor of the eye. So the eye is the light of the body. And if the light is dark, then the whole body is dark. Um, a lot of scholars have debated exactly what Jesus means by this. It's a little bit interesting language. Um, the best scholars I read basically describe it this way. That our eyes work in collaboration with our heart, and they create sort of this factory of desires. Ha have, you ever, like, uh, have you ever, like, gone online into Groupon or Amazon, and before that, you had nothing in your mind whatsoever that you wanted to buy. Now there's like five items. But before you went online, you didn't even know that you had a desire for these things. I was on a date with my wife a couple weeks ago, and we were like driving around after the end of our day. I'm like, hey, you want to stop by Target? She's like, no. I'm like, she was like, she answered pretty quickly. I'm like, how come? Because because I know that if we go to Target, then there's going to be things that, there that I know I want to buy, and I don't want to buy anything right now. I'm like, okay, let's not go to Target. And, and But again, I love that, because at the end of the day, there's this relationship that we have with the eyes. And I think what Jesus is saying is that you are to master your eyes and not let your eyes master you. What are we looking at? What do we devote our attention to? It matters. It matters, because it works in collaboration with your heart. And it creates like a factory of desires, things that you feel like you cannot live without, things that you desire. That is what then leads to what uh, God talks about in the Ten Commandments. Don't covet. There's this like momentum that begins to happen that I need this thing. I long for this thing. I dream about this thing. I fantasize about this thing. And what Kierkegaard would describe is that that, that is the definition of drifting from any form of freedom. It's going into a form of enslavement. Um, fourthly, Jesus says, consider carefully what you serve, what you devote your loyalty to. Again, in this context, he just says, you cannot serve God and, and money or mammon. 
Uh, this is an old way of describing not just money. Some of your translations might say that. But the idea of mammon is an old uh, first century reference to both wealth and property. Wealth and property is mammon. The, the, it's a deified form of that. And what Jesus is saying, he's not saying you cannot have property as a follower of Jesus. You cannot have money. He's not, he's not saying that at all. But what he is saying is that you, if you have it, you need to be very careful about it because it could end up possessing you and you cannot serve both God and this substance. And then fifthly, we see that Jesus invites his followers to seek first God's kingdom as a matter of uppermost priority. That's when he basically says, seek first God's kingdom, his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. And, I, and I, that, first, that little phrase, all of these things will be added to you, um, in the immediate context, he's talking about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, the clothing that you'll wear. But I think in the bigger context, he's also talking about the affirmation that you get, the accolades you receive, and the deep, deep treasures that you value. He says all of these things will be added to you as you seek first. as a matter of priority and loyalty the things of God. So let's finish up with some final like thoughts in terms of how can we begin these practices of Simplicity, and I'll just finish with some thoughts. Number one, uh, I'll just say them, prioritize, simplify, and organize. And this is the phrase that came to my head, prioritize, simplify, organize. Number one, prioritize. And this involves this process of just it's saying the same things about these things that God says about them. So in other words, if God says, look, if you're going to place your heart and your energy and your time, treasure and talent in something that will rust and rot and fade away, um, but, you, but if you don't call it that, if you call it as something else, um, if you say, you know, everybody else around you, they know that you're a hoarder, but you're just like, I'm just being frugal. Like, maybe you're actually, you're living in a state of self-deception. Like, maybe that's the real issue. And what we really need is a dose of reality to say the same things that God says. So, on the one hand, is to prioritize. What is the priority of our heart? Do we seek first God's kingdom? And if we don't, it, it's the best thing for us to do is just admit that, to recognize that. Maybe that's not something that my heart is seeking for right now. And maybe what I need to do is I need to reorient myself back around who God is, his character, his person, and begin to worship him as the true God that he truly is, his nature, his character, and so on, to worship him for who he is. That's what I mean by prioritize. Second, I think of the word simplify. And this is where the idea of, for example, minimalism or Maria Kondo or the idea of even adopting a low-carbon footprint lifestyle, all of these things as hipster, trendy they are, they have a shelf life. So in other words, the minimalistic movement that was like, what, so 2017 has been replaced already by Maria Kondo, which is all about you know, bringing out all your goods, which, by the way, I think it's awesome. All right? So if you have not been done, if you've not done that, find it on Netflix, watch it, binge watch it if you need to. It's actually pretty awesome. And here's what I would suggest. The idea that she basically walks you through is to bring all your stuff out, to throw it on the bed, which I'll get to in just a moment here because we talk about declutter and so on. But what I want for us to understand, that that alone is not the same thing as what it means to adopt a simplistic lifestyle according to the gospel. It's, it's not enough to just simply declutter your life. It's not enough to just somehow get better in terms of living or adopting a minimalistic lifestyle or sparking joy in terms of the things that you own or adopting a low-carbon footprint because at the end of the day, none of those things will actually reform your heart because it's possible to live a minimalistic type of a lifestyle 
to become somebody that has this low carbon footprint mentality and look at everybody else as insuperior to you and go around acting as if you are the stuff because you have done something so spectacular. Your heart is still just as messed up as anybody else. And what I would suggest is that really what's happening at the end of the day is it's nothing more than replacing a love for treasure for a love for a trend. There's still idolatry. It's still loving a process or a thing over the kingdom that Jesus says I've come to bring. So that being said, let me move on to the next one, which is this idea. Again, remember Kierkegaard said purity of heart is to will one thing. To will one thing. That's what it means to simplify. The one thing being the true thing, being God. And then finally, the idea of organization, to organize. Organize your life around this one thing. What, what this means is don't just talk about it. There's a process that we have to engage in, step into, begin to practice. Again, like we talked about this a little bit last week. It's not enough to just say, I really want to be a generous person. Someday, the chances of you becoming a generous person someday without you actually taking steps right now to do something about that uh, are, are pretty unlikely. In the same way, it's like, one of these days I want to lose weight and stop eating bags of potato chips while I you know, binge watch Netflix. Someday, at some point you're like, i got to go through and purge out nasty food in my closets right now and begin to make some life changes right now. Otherwise, that someday will never actually materialize and never happen. And this is my point that I would say with regard to this, is that organize. We, we have to step into this. There's, there's a practice. I think it's um, Dallas Willard that says something like that. Grace is not opposed to, how would I describe it? Grace, someone, if anybody knows this, grace is not opposed to earning. Or grace is opposed to earning, not opposed to effort. Sorry, I'm working this out right now. Listen to this again. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. The grace that we have in Jesus is something that we don't earn salvation. We're not doing stuff to get God to like us. He already not only not only likes you, he actually loves you. But grace is, it, it gives us empowerment to have effort. And that's, that's where this organization comes in, to organize my life around principles. And then here's just a handful of them. I'll go through these really quickly and we'll move on. Number one, hold wealth with open hands. Hold wealth with open hands. We touched on this a little bit last week. It's worth to say again that everything you have in your hands right now or in your disposal or in your bank account or in your house or in your field of influence, whatever it is, you really don't own that anyhow. And again, without being morbid, you can die today. You can be maimed right now, right, without being morbid, but it is morbid. Um, your life can be radically changed, and all that stuff that you once held for granted, you are no longer accessible to it anymore. The, the, the world, if anything, teaches us that we're in this forward progression of actually losing everything that our hands hold on to. You, you know that, right? That's what death is, right? It's, it's literally being cut off from everything that we hold dear, whether it be relationships or at some point, the Bible says, you naked you came in this world, naked you're going to leave. Nothing you can take with you. So it's this in-between time that we have to reckon with. It's this time right now that we have to think about how do we hold on to stuff. Well, number one, I say hold on to stuff with open hands. Uh, Jesus actually talks a lot about wealth. He's not ambiguous 
in any way, shape, or form when it comes to talking about money. Uh, one of the things that Jesus describes over and over again, if I had more time to unpack a lot of these passages, I would. One of the things that Jesus says over and over again is that wealth is, can be something that can be utilized and harnessed and, and, and moved for God's good purposes, or it can become this, this demonic force that exercises influence over you and holds you captive. It's one of the reasons why Jesus would say to one of the early people in the stories of the gospel, he says, go, if you want to have you know, treasure in heaven, go sell all that you have. And sometimes people have taken that, like, is Jesus telling every human being across all history to sell every? Of course not. It cannot be. Because in the early church, uh, he actually tells Zacchaeus, go you know, give away all, half of what you have. And Zacchaeus gives away half of what he has. And Jesus says, today salvation came to your house. Wait, wait, he only gave away half. The other you give away everything, or Jesus was telling him to give away everything. So what is it? The point is those things that become slave masters over you. Do you know what they are? I just ask you that. Do you know what they are? What holds sway over you? What holds influence over you? What are the treasures that you hold on to? Uh, secondly, practice Sabbath. If I had more time to go even further into this, I would. Um, talk to me if you are interested in reading more information about Sabbath. I got lots of great stuff, but the importance of taking a break, stopping this cycle of work. See, many of us, we don't even have a cycle. We just work, 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 work. It's like breathing out all the time without stopping to actually breathe in. So if I were to have you do a practice right now, everybody breathe out and hold your breath for as long as you can. At some point, your muscles will spasm and they will just breathe in. That's what Sabbath is. Sabbath is a way of saying, I work six days, seventh day. I create a seventh day. I find a seventh day. And I just rest. And in that moment, I'm not stressing. I'm not worried. I'm not freaking out about how am I going to pay my bills because God loves me. God loves me. He takes care of me. Uh, thirdly, declutter. Give away what you have, uh, what you don't need. Again, this is something to think about. It's, it's a form of what Jesus says to those that would follow him, you know, go sell all that you have and give away to the poor. Um, I, this is where I would say there is incredible wisdom in, like, Marie Kondo. Like, th this practice blew my mind, which, by the way, I did do this a couple weeks ago. I went through my closet. I took everything. I dumped it on my bed. And once I got through this process of feeling utter embarrassment over how much junk I had and then feeling guilt and shame going in that cycle in and out, then I finally was able to kind of figure out what I wanted and what I didn't want. I put it all back in my closet. And now, aside from feeling superior to you guys who still have all this junk, at the end of the day, I realized, like, this is actually, I'm just kidding. But the point that I would make is there's something about that, that process of realizing, like, oh, my gosh, I have way more stuff than what I actually need. You know what? Half that stuff I literally gave away. And not once have I missed it, which says something about the stuff that we currently have. So, again, as Americans, we live in enormous wealth. And I think that's part of our problem. Our hearts are wrapped around this stuff. We love it too much. We treat it as a treasure. Or if we don't have it, we wish we had it. And we're back at the same form of idolatry. So on the one hand, if you're really, really rich and you got all this stuff, you're trying to figure out ways to protect it and bring about security over it. You're stressed because you're worried that you could lose it all. Or on the opposite end of the spectrum, you're somebody that has no money whatsoever. You can't even afford to put gas in your car. That's why you ride a bike, because you will have no money. But you are constantly envisioning, fantasizing, thinking, dreaming about ways to make more money. You're at the same place. It's just, it's just a different position, a focus on 
the wrong thing, money, as the Savior, which will help you. And what Jesus is saying is take that energy that is focused upon the wrong treasure and focus it upon the right treasure, God's kingdom. Uh, fourthly, pay careful attention to the things and the relationships and the practices that produce an addiction in you. Do you know what those are, by the way? Do, do you know what things right now in your life that you may be, by way of religious practice, and I mean that religiously, like you cannot sit down on the TV, watch something without your phone in your hand because there's this interaction that's constantly going on between watching TV and Instagram and the hit that you're getting, that little dopamine hit of like, oh my gosh, so-and-so liked my, oh my gosh, so-and-so liked my photo. Like, so-and-so, like, you, in your mind, you're like, oh my God, the level, the quality, they have 10,000 likes and followers, and they like my photo. Like, there is this dopamine hit that happens. It is, by definition, a form of an addiction. But what would it look like, a future that says, I don't need that. It brings some sense of joy and imagination and excitement when it happens, but I don't want that thing to become the source of my life. I don't want that thing to be my source of value and approval and my treasure. And so that's why I would suggest at some point it might not be a bad idea to fast from some of these things, a media fast. You know, say for a couple of weeks, I'm not going to watch Netflix. I'm not going to even necessarily, I'm going to delete. I know people actually like delete Instagram off their phones for a series of weeks as a way of just saying, I don't want this to become a drug that I'm feeding myself as a means of bolstering my identity or as a means of feeling deep anxiety because of FOMO. Be aware of those things. And the invitation, ultimately, is to see what Jesus is bringing us into. That's why I want to finish the message. I want to read a couple passages. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. But I want you to listen to this because, like I said at the very beginning, you and I are wired for rewards and or approval and treasures to place some degree of value in things that are of worth, valuable, worthiness. We're wired for that. So you shouldn't suppress that. You shouldn't somehow suppress your need to be approved. Uh, nor should you suppress your need to value things that are valuable, but what you should do is you should take careful consideration and stock of your life and ask, what are the things that you're valuing in this life? What are the things that you're going to to give you the hits of approval that you long for? And in light of the gospel, in light of what God has done for us through Jesus, rethink your response to them. And this is where maybe the practice of simplicity may be of incredible help to you as they follow Jesus. So listen to these passages. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, actually addresses the whole concept of approval and a reward. And it's in this passage, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me. And I'm giving to every man according to his work shall be. What Jesus says, I come to bring approval and accolades. It's the idea that C.S. Lewis describes in his famous writing called um, The Weight of Glory. It's this idea of, of God actually conferring upon you approval. Think about the words of Jesus that says to those that are faithful servants, well done, good and faithful servant. I can remember when my kids were young and they did something that was, you know, brought me joy. And I remember looking up my daughters and just saying, I'm so, so proud of you. 
this look that I don't even know how to describe, I can't even define it, would literally come over their face. This sense of like utter, everything is right in the universe, everything is right in the family, everything is right in my life, everything is in the proper place because dad has recognized me. That's what C.S. Lewis describes. That is the weight of glory that God one day, which Jesus identifies, he will come and he will bring his reward. He will confer his accolades on you. That might be shocking for you. You might disbelieve that. Perhaps this morning, God would spark faith in your life. That will lead to joy that's sparked. But the point is that God will do something in your heart that will rewire your trust. This is what God comes bringing. And then finally, listen to what he says. Jesus then said in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said to him, if you will be perfect or complete or whole or not duplicitous, not having two faces, go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2 says, Jesus Christ, in him are hidden all the treasures wisdom and knowledge. What Paul wants us to see, what the New Testament wants us to see, what the entire storyline of the Bible, from the very beginning to the very end, wants us to see, is that you and I are wired for accolades and treasure. The question is, what are we placing? What are we finding? What are we investing these accolades and the treasure in? We're the area that we need to redirect, repent, turn away from, and refocus to do what Jesus said, which is to seek first God's kingdom and all of these things will be added to you. This is what it means, I believe, to begin to act out or practice simplicity, to pull away from those things, to then re-engage with the one true thing. Again, listen to Kierkegaard as he says, purity of heart is to will one thing.